This is The Last Ship Podcast, Season 3, Episode 9. Thanks for joining me for the unofficial fan podcast for the TNT drama, The Last Ship. I'm Al Holtz, and this is the podcast on which I discuss, analyze, and critique the show whose title became far more accurate by the end of this week's episode. As always, I'll begin with my general impression of the episode, followed by detailed analysis of Season 3, Episode 9, titled Paradise. I'll name the well-said moment of this week's episode, and I'll wrap up with the naval feature, Ship of the Week. So let's dive in. My general impression of this episode, wow, even on second viewing, I could not grasp how they fit so much into one episode. The piece on the island was a significant story, followed by all the action at sea, not to mention the complete insanity going on back in St. Louis. Just a superb outing this week. The episode opens with a graphic stating four weeks ago, and we see workers loading green powder into bomblets and placing the bomblets into munitions, which are then loaded into crates labeled Vietnam. We see a Vietnamese military patrol moving through the woods when one of the rounds lands near them. They believe it is a dud until they look up and see the green powder falling from the sky. We hear Chandler's voice talking about people leaving their safe zones while we see medical personnel administering the cure. Chandler says they don't know they're already dead as the shot changes to people in bed bleeding from their eyes, nose, and mouth. Now, not to be too much of a military geek here, and my direct knowledge is now over 20 years old, but those weapons do not appear to be designed such that they could detonate in the air, and if they did, the shell certainly would not be intact on the ground. So the technical aspect of that scene escapes me, but we get the idea. We see that Chandler's in comms on the radio with St. Louis, and he advises the president that Peng could kill off a country the size of Japan with only six of those weapons. Sasha tells the president that the weapons are coming from an island called Paraiso. Chandler asks for two more destroyers, Shackleton and Hayward, to join them in the mission. The president gives him command of the two ships, but gives him a stern warning that they need to tie those weapons to Peng. I'm guessing here that Hayward is named for Admiral Thomas B. Hayward, the former chief of naval operations, but I couldn't determine where they may have gotten the name Shackleton from. It would be interesting to know that. In the White House, Kara asks Dennis if he's figured out the communication issue preventing them from getting the proof-of-life video from the James. Dennis tells her there's an encrypted signal that is taking up a portion of the bandwidth. Kara sits down and takes a look and tells Dennis that pattern is a human voice. Shaw and Rivera enter, and Rivera asks Kara for the troop readiness reports. He takes them from her and tells her he's got it, then enters the president's office. Shaw apologizes to Kara and tells her she's working on getting her back in. Kara asks her about Rivera, and Shaw says, I'll have to assume that he's as much of a patriot as the rest of us. On the James, Slattery enters medical where Doc Rios is tending to Takahaya. Slattery tells Rios to give him the room, and Rios exits. Takahaya tells Slattery that they cannot permit Peng to do to anyone else what he did to Japan. Takahaya tells Slattery he can help, that he has ships and men, and he knows the waters. Slattery tells him to get some rest. 
I like the way that Slattery pauses prior to referring to Takahaya as captain. That's probably as much respect as Slattery can possibly offer to Takahaya, but it's plenty. In CIC, Cameron Burke receives a call from Jesse that Vulture Team is now on Paraiso Island. On the island, Chandler, Green, and Sasha head in and come upon the former location of a 16-inch gun that was used to defend the island. The 16-inch was the main weapon of the Iowa-class battleships and was put into service during World War II. The shells fired by these guns weighed well over 2,000 pounds, so you can understand why Sasha says that they were serious about defending the island. As they approach the gun mount, they hear what sounds like gunshots. As they take a defensive position, a tennis ball lands near Green. A man named Kanoa appears up the hill. He's dressed in a tennis outfit and asks for help with the ball. Kanoa takes Vulture Team to the town on his golf cart and tells them people from all over Asia came here to be safe from the red flu. He says they started farms, schools, everything. The golf cart arrives at what appears to be old barracks buildings, and Kanoa stops the cart and tells them we walk from here. As they walk through the base, they see a theater sign with the title of the James Dean movie, Rebel Without a Cause. Sasha asks Kanoa if Peng knows they're there, and he says, of course. Peng leaves us alone to live in peace. She asks what goes on here, and Kanoa says, we work, we have a factory, and everyone buys from us. Chandler asks to see the factory. As Kanoa takes them into the factory, Chandler nods to Green, and Green and Wolf keep watch out front. Inside, there are about a dozen men and women operating sewing machines, making clothing. Sasha moves to one of the workers and speaks to her in Chinese. The woman looks very nervous as she responds. After a few questions, Kanoa interrupts and tells Sasha that he can answer the questions. I love the concept of this town right out of the 1950s sitting here on an island in the midst of the apocalypse. Just a great idea. However, I wonder... Are they getting so many visitors to this island that they have the need to pretend like the green death weapons are not made here and they're only making blue jeans and t-shirts? Or is all of this charade that they're putting on specifically for the crew of the Nathan James? Or do they actually sell these clothes to supplement their anti-cure income? I have so many nonsense questions here and so few answers. They exit the factory, and Chandler tells Kanoa, this is not the factory I wanted to see. Kanoa swears that is the only factory on the island. Just then, a young girl runs by chasing a dog. Kanoa tells them to ignore her, and Green runs after her. Green catches up to her, and the girl begs him to help her. She tells him she is a slave, and that she works at another factory. The rest of the team arrives, and the girl says a Chinese warship arrived yesterday. Chandler tells Kanoa, you are taking us where we want to go. In the White House, Kara arrives at her office to find Rivera going through her papers. She enters, and he quickly closes her laptop. He tells her he is worried about what team she is on. Rivera starts bashing Chandler, and he tells her that right now, we need to focus on the American people, that while we are looking to the east, the country is collapsing. He tells her that when the chips fall, it's important to know who your friends are. On the island, Kanoa is again driving Vulture Team in the golf cart. Chandler tells him to stop, they get out, and Chandler asks what is down there behind the chain-link fence. Kanoa says it's an old bunker. 
Chandler says he wants to see it, and Kanoa replies he does not have keys. Chandler says we do, and Carlton Burke proceeds to cut the lock with a bolt cutter. And did you notice here, when Burke pushes the gate open, he says, access granted. Chandler radios the James that they may have found the munitions factory and to stand by for coordinates. Slattery tells Cameron Burke to spin up two T-Lambs, and Burke repeats the order. And T-Lamb is an acronym for Tomahawk Land Attack Missile. The Tomahawk is a very precise long-range weapon which was first put into use during Operation Desert Storm in which 288 Tomahawks were launched. As Vulture Team approaches the building, Kanoa is gunned down by automatic weapons fire and a massive firefight ensues. Vulture Team takes out all hostiles and moves into the building. They come upon missile parts. Sasha finds a stencil, paints it on the wall, and determines that they are taking the missiles to Korea. The obvious question here is, why are there no guards at the fence to this factory? We have an entire, what seemed like an entire platoon at the factory with automatic weapons, but prior to getting there, someone can just cut the lock and walk right in. Doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. In the White House, Dennis is showing Kara what he found in the transmissions. Each interference is a set of three words that seem like gibberish. Dennis tells her that the signal is coming from inside the White House. In the James briefing room, Gator is telling Chandler and Slattery that there are several shipping lanes that the Chinese ship could have used. Gator says that he believes they would have taken the western route to head to Korea. Takahaya says he believes Peng would have headed through the Formosa Strait. Slattery says that's our new course. On the bridge of the Hayward, Captain Malin enters and takes a call from Chandler. Chandler gives him the coordinates and the mission, and Malin acknowledges. Malin says, Desron is ready for tasking, sir, and Desron is the naval acronym for Destroyer Squadron. In the White House, Kara shows the staff the exact location where the James will meet the other two destroyers. The James receives a call from Shackleton that they have located the Chinese ship. Hayward reports in the same, and Slattery calls for general quarters. In the White House, Dennis tells Kara that he has figured out the three-word combinations are map coordinates. The staff gathers around the radio to listen in on their three ships closing in on the Chinese ship. As the battle prep can be heard over the radio, Kara gets all of the coordinates from Dennis and proceeds to plotting them on the wall map. Haiphong, the location of the nightclub, Shanzai, and finally the Formosa Strait. Carol runs to the radio, grabs the mic, and orders all ships, stop, stop, stop. Just then, CIC alerts, vampire, vampire, and Slattery orders them to launch chaff and brace for impact. The bridge of the James is hit. Most of the bridge crew is on the deck and bleeding. Slattery calls for a corpsman. Cameron Burke advises there are more incoming vampires. In the White House, the staff is in shock, listening. On the Shackleton, Captain Hicks orders the crew to prepare to abandon ship as they take two more missile strikes. In the White House, all radio traffic ceases. Slattery orders CIC to trace the missiles and target land batteries. Granderson calculates the track, and Slattery orders them to fire. The Tomahawks are launched as two incoming missiles are taken out by the Sea Whiz. Sea Whiz, or CIWS, is an acronym for Close-In Weapons System. This is one of those ship battle sequences here that the fans live for, I know I do, 
especially after all the action with the Ramses late in season two. And this sequence did not disappoint. CIC reports that the Chinese ship and land battery have been trashed. Gator reports that Shackleton is no longer visible on radar. Slattery orders Nomad in the air to search for survivors and for rescue teams to get in the water. The James crew pulls many survivors into ribs and transports them back to the James, followed by the semi-regular musical montage. As Miller is assisting with Injured, he sees O'Connor. They hug, and O'Connor says he got transferred from Shackleton to Hayward a week ago. Miller calls Jeter and points out O'Connor. Jeter tells them, later, let's tend to the wounded. I'm so happy to see O'Connor here. He was one of the heroes of season two, and it's just great to have him back on board the James, and I hope they utilize him in the final four episodes. Carlton Burke, in the air with Jesse, reports that he sees a large oil slick and debris field, but no survivors in the water. In the James Peeway, Malin tells Chandler, 85 dead and 23 missing. In the briefing room, Malin asks how they ended up at those coordinates. Chandler tells him Takahaya, and Malin is shocked. Chandler tells him, we lost a lot today, but we prevented genocide in Korea. He says, we'll take care of our wounded, then we'll finish off Peng. On a Chinese ship, an officer reports to Peng that their ship sent a distress call. Peng asks if they got all three of the American ships, and the officer cannot confirm. He advises Peng that the land batteries were destroyed. Another obvious question, what is Peng doing on a ship? Surely he can deal out his genocide and his other destruction over the radio. Why would he be out on a ship? In the White House, Rivera asks Kara how she knew the ships were going to be attacked. She tells him it was instinct. Dennis receives a transmission from the James, and Rivera grabs the headset. Chandler tells him he believes the enemy has compromised their transmissions and that they are going to MCON. Chandler ends the transmission, and Slattery orders Garnett to take the ship to MCON. President Oliver enters and says he wants to speak to Chandler. Rivera tells him they went radio silent. Oliver heads to his office. Rivera checks his phone, then heads out the door and down the steps. Kara follows him into the parking garage, clearly thinking that he is the one that passed the ship coordinates to Peng. In the president's office, Shaw tells Oliver to sit down and that Chandler's China adventure ends now. He tells her she is fired and picks up the phone. She tells him the lines have been cut and the White House is on lockdown. Rivera enters the parking garage and meets Senator Beatty. Oliver presses a button under his desk and two men that Oliver does not know enter. Allison tells him his security detail has been reassigned. She tells him that she is working with the regional leaders and that the regions must be allowed to govern themselves. What is in this for Shaw? If there's no central government and the regions govern themselves, what's in it for her? How will she wield any power if there's no central government? What's her end goal? This is likely what we'll learn in the final four episodes. In the garage, as Rivera and Beatty argue, a car pulls up and a man shoots both of them. Kara runs to Rivera to provide aid, and Rivera tells her they are all in on it and she is not safe. As Rivera dies, Kara grabs his cell phone and runs. In the president's office, Shaw tells Oliver that by now Beatty and Rivera are dead and that if he does not cooperate, his family and friends will not be safe. He tells her she has gone completely insane. 
Kara exits the parking garage and walks down the street as police cars arrive with sirens on. For this week's well-said moment, I picked one of my favorite scenes, really, of this season. After Captain Malin ends the call with the James, his XO, Commander Cobb, asks, That was Tom Chandler? And Malin smiles and replies, Damn right it was. Ship of the Week The keel for RMS Lusitania, a ship of the Cunard line, was laid on June 16, 1904 at the bank of the River Clyde in Scotland. At 786 feet long, she was more than 50% longer than an Arleigh Burke-class destroyer. Lusitania was launched on June 6, 1906 and departed on her maiden voyage September 7, 1907, heading to New York under the command of Commodore James Watt. After 200 additional voyages, Lusitania, with 1,962 aboard, departed New York on voyage number 202 on May 1, 1915. Prior to the voyage, the German embassy, at the request of a number of German Americans, issued a warning that the waters around Great Britain were part of the war zone and that vessels flying the British flag were subject to attack. On May 7, 1915, as Lusitania traveled along the coast of Ireland, German submarine U-20 fired a torpedo, striking Lusitania on the starboard bow. The ship later sank, and 1,198 people lost their lives, including 128 Americans. Germany claimed the ship was carrying munitions and flying a neutral flag, making it a legitimate target. The Cunard Line denied this munitions claim. In September 1915, Germany declared that passenger ships were not to be attacked. Two years later, those restrictions were lifted, and the memory of the loss of the Lusitania was one of the factors that led to the U.S. entering World War I. For years, the British government maintained that the Lusitania carried no munitions. Then in 1982, when a salvage company formed plans to dive the wreckage, the British government warned the divers of the potential danger of munitions in the wreckage. And that will do it for this week. For all things related to the podcast, including subscription links and previous episodes, visit the show notes at thelastshippodcast.com slash s3e9. Our feedback question this week is, what will Kara do once she learns Shaw is behind the coup? When she figures it out, what's going to be her first action? Leave us your answer to that in the comments in the show notes. To see episode 9 again, visit tntdrama.com, find it on your cable system's on-demand feature, or download the Watch TNT app. And join me here again next week. Until then, thanks for listening. <laughs>